Alexei Golubyev, uh, welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you and uh, what do you do? Thank you for inviting me. Yes, I'm Alexei Golubyev. I'm Associate Professor in History at the University of Houston. I teach here at Houston primarily Russian and European history, kind of uh, focusing on the 20th century, but, you know, uh, moving into uh, the modern and early modern era as well. And um, my current project, one of my current projects is on historical anti-colonialism added emerged in the early Soviet historical scholarship and how the first generation of Soviet Marxist historians, you know, tried to find radical ways of reimagining Russian history introducing uh, or looking at it from a number of perspectives that you know we associate with much later uh, stages of historiography. So uh, this brings me to your podcast. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, you have this uh, recent article, Natural Colonization, the Early Soviet School of Historical Anti-Colonialism. And, you know, in it you uh, engage with and you told me that you're translating the works of some of these early Bolshevik historians who use Marxism to basically reconceptualize a history of, of empire uh, in particular. And so I guess we should just start the conversation by explaining who are some of these figures that you're focused on and what were they writing? Well, the central fi figure here is, of course, Mikhail Pokrovsky, a person who was part of the Bolshevik establishment, right, who was um, deputy commissar for education uh, for the first 15 years of the Bolshevik rule, a person who was rector of the Communist Academy, who was, you know, at the center of the Soviet historical prof profession. That is why there is a sad expression in Soviet Russian historiography, the Pokrovsky School, right, Shkola Pokrovskova. Something that historians used, have used, and still use to refer to a group that emerged around Pokrovsky, who, you know, uh, followed his methodological lead in analyzing uh, Russian imperial history. Now, I'm trying to move away from uh, the Pokrovsky school in, in my own writings, in my own project, because I, I'm doing it for analytical and for pragmatic reasons. Analytically, I want to focus on one particular legacy that this school left. And this legacy is anti-colonialism. And as much as it comes from within the Pokrovsky school, it also emerged from outside. Uh, and in some ways, it drew on the preceding traditions, on the uh, Siberian regionalist in particular tradition. Pragmatically, I also want to move away from this term, the Pokrovsky school. And that's why I'm uh, speaking about the school of historical anti-colonialism, because the Pokrovsky School has been thoroughly discredited. You know, there is a, a knee-jerk reaction among many of my colleagues. The moment they hear, you know, Pokrovsky or Pokrovsky School, they uh, kind of they think they deal with something outdated, without with something so kind of ideologically 
loaded that there is no point in engaging with that kind of scholarship. And this is exactly what I want to do. I want, you know, uh, my profession, my discipline to re-engage with that very important school of thought. That's why I would like to re, like you guys reimagine Soviet Georgia, I'm trying to reimagine uh, the Pokrovsky school in terms of their radical anti-colonial stance. Why is there such a knee-jerk reaction in this idea that it's outdated? Well, the knee-jerk reaction is um, not to anti-colonialism, of course. The knee-jerk reaction is to uh, the general... See, Pokrovsky, when um, he was alive, he was very militant. And so the school, the Pokrovsky school, was also very militant. Uh, in historical profession, you know, it's almost part of the etiquette to be respectful to your uh, the previous generation generations of uh, of historians of scholars. And Pokrovsky and his students were so critical of them that you know it created a lot of animosity within this professional community. That's why when some of the kind of people who were criticized by the Pokrovsky school, they came back uh, in the 1930s. And of course, these were also the people who uh, influenced the, as emigres, who influenced uh, Anglo-American or Francophone studies of Soviet history. Kind of, they tried to use the Kind of ideological stance of the Krosky school as something absolutely opposite to good scholarship, right? So the fact that Pokrovsky was very explicit about his political position, the fact that students of his school were very open, that you know their writings are very ideological, that their writings are driven by a political agenda, by an ideological agenda, it immediately, you know became a tool to discredit the school, right? Because if you are very political, how can you produce good scholarship? Many people ask in my discipline. Uh, this understanding of scholarship as something that should be outside of the politics is kind of, is common. It is something that many people share and it is why I think kind of, it is so easy. Uh, it was so easy within, you know, the matter of decade to discredit the Pokrovsky school within Russia. And of course, outside of Russia, Soviet Russia, it was uh, always treated with kind of contempt by uh, people like Paul Milukov and other kind of scholars who framed Russian studies. It continues today because uh, in a way, what the critique of Pokrovsky school uh, succeeded in was to move it into, you know, uh, the domain of historiographic references. You know, you no longer need to engage with a school which has become obsolete. You no longer need to engage with a set of ideas that have been discredited. You don't even need to read the scholarship itself, many people think, right? Because it's outdated, it's ideological, it's, you know. Uh, and in this way, many people, I would say the absolute majority of uh, people who reject the Pokrovsky school, they never read Pokrovsky or they never read some of the scholarship produced at the time. 
because why would you need to read something outdated right so it is interesting because the power of criticism uh, Stalinist uh, and the one produced in um, kind of abroad was so kind of it was so powerful that uh, and as I said that's kind of the best explanation that I have that it moved Pokrovsky from the Pokrovsky school from a, a sort of good from the domain of academic discussion into the domain of historiographic references you see you don't you no longer need as a professional historian to engage with that school you put a reference right that some of this stuff was discussed back in the 1920s but it was ideological you know it was part of the Pokrovsky school uh, let's move on right let's go on and see what later scholars uh, wrote on this topic um, you know you mentioned that this Pokrovsky school obviously existed in a very militant and revolutionary time, of course, in the aftermath of the 1917 revolution. And so, as we know from our podcast and research history of the establishment of the uh, Georgian Soviet Socialist Republic, you know, historians play a very important role in the socialist construction, right? They have, they're not only, of course, materially through schools, you know, teaching about the past as a to people as a form of social mobility, but also, as you uh, said before, as like a political intervention into previous understandings. And so see, for me, as a Marxist, I actually very much think it's incredibly important to uh, disrespect, but understand the people who came before you in order to produce something better. And so um, the thing about Pokrovsky that you mentioned, which is very interesting, is that his whole historiographic approach was about undermining the Russian imperial historians to create a new history in order to develop a better future. So for our uh, listeners, like, could you describe the way that Pokrovsky and some of his contemporaries that you've looked at actually uh, uh, undermined historiographically um, and intellectually the Russian imperial scholarship? Like, what was this transformation in understanding um, that they were able to provide through historical inquiry? Because it seems the most important part, and also the key to it being that they were politicized historians. That's a great question. And I think one way to answer it would be by saying that uh, the scholars of kind of the early Soviet school of historical anti-colonialism, they looked at their work not as mere scholarship, but as part of the liberation process, right? And in this sense, they almost belong to a different profession than we do. For example, let me try to kind of reconstruct their thinking. What colonization kind of represents as a process? You move, kind of, right, you move into somebody else's land because colonization is uh, the way it was practiced by, let's say, the Russian Empire, uh, very often involved settler colonialism. So you move into somebody else's land, right? You move with settlers, you have to destroy the indigenous population, you have to, you know, uh, conquer this land, you have to change its demographic composition because, well, as we know, settler colonialism is uh, not an event but structure. 
and uh, a process that sort of is extended in time. The colonists come to stay. And then you have to justify it, right? You can't justify it by, you know, saying that the land was empty, right? The people who were here kind of they were misusing it or abusing the land. They were kind of not even people, you know, subhumans, human animals. Uh, as uh, a term that resurfaced recently in the Palestinian conflict. They were kind of they did not deserve to own this land, right? So that's why we came, we kind of uh, we're here to stay. And the last stage in this process is to write a history of the colonization as something natural, as something that, you know, was uh, destined. Again, something that could not but happen. And this imperial historiography that uh, the Pokrovsky School criticizes, does exactly this. They write the history of, of Russian, uh, the expansion of the Russian Empire in terms of na natural colonization. Uh, Vasily Kluchevsky, one of the key historians of the 19th century, whom Pokrovsky criticizes a lot, uh, he speaks about, you know, the natural borders of Russia. He speaks about Russian princes as people who, you know, were pursuing the historical destiny of the Russian state to occupy these natural borders. And this is something that uh, they succeeded in doing. They succeeded in uh, framing this process uh, because you look at how history is produced in Russia these days and it's still the same. It's still, you know, 19th century good old uh, imperial writing in the sense that uh, they still write, they don't write of the Russian imperial expansion in terms of settler colonialism. It's still natural, you know. Uh, we were bringing, you know, peace, we were bringing prosperity, we were bringing uh, civilization to the people who kind of did not know how to live better. And the reason I kind of, um, I thought it might be productive to think in this way is that this final stage is what these days we call epistemic violence, you know, an epistemic erasure. It is something that uh, the colonizers do at the last stage of the colonization. They write history that erases the indigenous presence that, you know, glorifies the colonial expansion that says that uh, the native is no longer here, right? The native vanished. The native is gone. That's why this land is ours. And this epistemic violence, again, as we see from the Palestinian conflict, as we see from uh, many other conflicts uh, occurring globally, is what produces and keeps on reproducing real violence. Right? It's what keeps on reproducing oppression, it's what keeps on reproducing the uh, class, colonial, other forms of oppression. And that is why the people who move into history uh, during the early Soviet era who become professional historians or amateur historians, they look at their profession in terms of, you know, in political terms. It is natural for them because they have to dismantle this grand imperial narrative. They have to kind of be uh, the scholars who stop this epistemic violence. They have to uh, criticize the 
previous narrative, we have to show how, you know, it reproduces the structures of colonial oppression. And that's why, you know, they have no respect for Kluchevsky. They have no respect for Solovyov. They have no respect for those generations of imperial historians. They recognize their work. They recognize that they were professionals, but they also recognize that they contributed to the Russian imperial project. It's interesting because you also frame the need now to revisit early Bolshevik um, Marxist anti-colonial um, historiography because uh, there's a broader discussion that's happening about decolonization and decolonial historiographies. But what I think is like the most maybe interesting part of your article too is that you know you, you very clearly frame that um, the project of kind of early Bolshevik decolonization and deconstruction of the Russian Empire was to frame this you know colonial uh, anti-colonial liberation as a means to get to socialism, not as a kind of like crude nationalist response, but actually as a means to creating a socialist society. And that's kind of one of the more interesting things, because if you think about the rise of the anti-colonial movements in the 50s and 60s, heavily inspired, though maybe with their own conditions uh, by the, the, the Soviet experiment, that there was this basically, um, mutual dependence on socialism and anti-colonialism. You couldn't have, you know, some anti-colonial movement without a vision of socialism, a, a form of, of modernization and industrialization um, that had been inspired uh, by what they saw in the, in the, in the Soviet period. Um, and so I'm curious about, you know, this connection or the way that the commitment to Marxism and, and a socialist ideal kind of like animated anti-colonial historiography, you know, that connection between the Marxism and socialism and the and desire for a, a new view of, of anti-imperial nationhood in the Soviet Union. No, absolutely. See, um, one, one of the reasons why I find this school very interesting and why I think it will be very productive to bring it into the current conversations about um, colonialism, anti-colonialism, imperialism, anti-imperialism, and so forth, this whole settler-colonial debate, is that those folks stood on very different positions in comparison to what we stand on now. You know, uh, I cannot but comprehend a lot of uh, anti-colonial writing these days as a kind of palliative care in the sense that kind of uh, we cannot envision and by we I mean the profession the historical profession very often cannot envision the world without capitalism right the historical profession cannot envision this radical move into a different political uh, system uh, and kind of by staying within this kind of capitalist, whatever, formation, uh, you cannot come up with radical solutions, right? So we, again, as the profession, we can recognize the violence, we can, you know, try to describe those forms of historical experience that the 
oppressed people had, right, as uh, opposed to oppressors. But we cannot find radical solutions in the sense that early Soviet historians took as very natural because uh, they were building socialism and that's why they could openly recognize, right, that Russia suppressed, you know, Ukraine, that the Russian imperial center suppressed the Ukrainians. And we kind of, we recognize it, you know, we call it colonialism, we call Ukraine a colonized nation, but we're not staying here. We kind of, we're moving further on. We kind of, we do not stop this conversation with the idea that former colonized nations should become nation states, right? The reason being that kind of in nation states, the nation states can also be kind of a different form of oppression in kind of nationalism. If kind of we will not be supporting nationalism, especially bourgeois nationalism, because with nationalism only national elites benefit, not all the people, not all national community, as we know uh, quite well from history. Uh, that is why Pokrovsky, for example, he, one of the texts that I am going to translate for the reader that kind of I and my colleague from the University of Georgia are preparing, the kind of reader of the early Soviet historical anti-colonialism. One of these texts is a debate between Mikhail Pokrovsky and Ukrainian historians, because at some point Ukrainian historians they demand that. Russian historians, you know, Moscovite historians, they should become more kind of open in recognizing Ukraine as a separate entity. And Pokrovsky to that says that, you know, kind of we do recognize the past injustices that the Ukrainian nation uh, has suffered. But we are not building nationalism here, we are building socialism, right? And socialism is a um, kind of more important goal in the sense. So we keep on our work, we will continue, you know, describing the historical forms of colonial oppression that, you know, Russia uh, applied to Ukraine. But we will not move this conversation into the nationalist terms because, you know, nobody would benefit from that. Looking at the sort of snapshot today, things like most sort of post-socialist countries are just like, their vision is getting into the EU or staying in the EU. So their entire national project and decolonization sort of stems from pretty much making themselves acceptable um, to be a successful, you know, nation state, be sort of the rich, you know, elites. Um, so it's very much. Um, circumscribe into that kind of understanding. Georgia does the same thing, you know, Ukraine does the same thing, everyone that, you know, around Russia was trying to do the same thing, just weren't allowed, <laughs> but an all project has to be anti-Russian, right? So it has to be like this, like zero compromise, like Russia, you know, against Russia to be like, you must break all relationships with Russia and not just break relationships, but like demonize if you want to be part of this modern nation state and then decolonization so-called you know whatever that means anymore um is part of this process um 
where I find also interesting the conversations about Israel and Palestinians is that every single thing is framed around Palestinians are never allowed to go sort of very far, you know? It's like, are you questioning this, you know, the existence of the state of Israel is always like the way they stop the conversation. We're never allowed to question the state of Israel. However, I found it interesting that during you know, this last year and a half was what, you know, Russian invasion is that people were like, let's dismantle all of Russia. Russia shouldn't exist. <laughs> so it's like, it's interesting how much, like, in this context, how far you can even go with your so-called decolonization is also very, uh, you know, within a certain boundary, um, depending on who you are, right? U.S. you can criticize, but nobody, if you say something like end of America, like death to America, that's, that's you're a terrorist and, you know, you should go to Guantanamo Bay kind of level. But you can say... Russia shouldn't exist and you're rewarded and, you know, and the head of EU. So it's really, I find all these things like really, really interesting how you are allowed to even think about so-called colonization and what happens to the so-called colony. As a historian, kind of, I really appreciate the, uh, each, I, I learn a lot from Pokrovsky in this sense. I really appreciate that he gave me this understanding that historiography is important, not per se, but historiography is important because it allows us to see how the structures of violence are always historically, you know, uh, rooted. And that is why historiography is important, you know, not just to kind of tell people how things were and how they developed, you know, not just to, uh, make them think critically, which is a very general uh, justification for uh, history teaching in American universities or elsewhere. But historiography is important because it helps reproduce the structures of violence, the structures of settler colonial violence, right? But it also can be radical, and in this sense, it can help dismantle those structures. It can help uh, see them, it can help to see what kind of work they do, and it can help us to uh, do something with them. The problem is that it also, kind of in Pokrovsky case, it was built on the assumption that we're building a new society. You know, in the 1920s and in the 1930s, they were building a new society, radically new society, something that would have nothing to do with imperial kind of colonial project, something that would uh, bring former colonized people to Moscow, you know, train them as professional historians, train them in Marxist kind of uh, thinking, and send them back to write their own histories, to, you know, educate more people to, in, uh, in their former colonial settings. Because the project was indeed radical. The project was to build a kind of state, a kind of society that had never existed before. And the reason why I cannot think uh, of much scholarship, anti-colonial scholarship done with kind of these days as a kind of palliative care, you know, because we don't have this luxury. They were building socialism, we keep on reproducing capitalism. That is kind of a radically different uh, position. 
Um, I mean, I got interested in history through radical politics. And, you know, when I was 16 years old, read the autobiography of Malcolm X, read about the uh, militant groups in the 60s. And that's what got me in love with history and with revolutionary history and wanting to like kind of study the history of these movements. Because I, I agree with you that even though in the United States, I'm from the Bay Area, it's like we weren't uh, constructing socialism, but like my love of history came through movements and like being involved in things and then using people's experiences in fighting and people's experiences in these kind of revolutionary situations to animate how we move through the world, how we analyze the world and what we can do about it. So I do think that these kind of like revolutionary and radical historiographic experiments and also just the documentation of movements that came before us can animate at least a roadmap to kind of a new world, fighting for a new world, even though, you know, America's nowhere close to constructing a, a social society. That's that's exactly the driving force of my project, you know, to bring my discipline in into a conversation with that sort of almost forgotten anti-colonial critique. Because they stood on different political positions, right? Those different politics sort of uh, defined some kind of radically different takes on a certain uh, topics. This is something, you know, uh, analytically productive. In addition to being, you know, politically radical, this is something that, you know, we can learn from. You know, generally in sometimes discussions about Soviet history, you know, Marxism and Marxism-Leninism especially sometimes gets viewed as this kind of um, uh, stoic and non-dynamic um, ideology imposed on people. But now we're starting to see new historians who are looking at it very differently and seeing the ways that people were able to like dynamically engage, mobilize through the ideas of Marxism, Leninism to sort of change their own conditions on the ground. You know, I just was reading a book about the way that party activists in Leningrad, for example, were able to take the ideas of Marxism, Leninism, and sort of like negotiate their place on the shop floor in the 1920s. Um, and we see, for example, when we look at the, the Georgian case, that historians were able to like use the framework of Marxism, Leninism to write new national histories that that had never been written before about, you know, what is Georgia? What was Georgia's history? What does it mean? What's its place in the USSR? Um, and I think that like that's a really interesting piece that I'm curious about this role of Marxism as an ideology, um, not as like an imposition, but as something which like dynamically um, uh, opened up possibility and the way that those possibilities were engaged with in terms of history. And then the second part of this, which is related, is that and just again to sort of bring Georgia just into the discussion. Um, one interesting thing is that, you know, as Lenin, of course, was outlining ideas about what is the Russian Empire, what is the nature of colonialism, and of course, even in some of Stalin's speeches and writings, there's discussions about Georgia, where you know Georgia and Armenia are understood as these developed nations that were under um, a imperial oppression, but they were not a backwards nation, and of course, this position within the 
kind of Soviet project of nation building, socialist nation building. And Sopo and I actually went to the archive a couple of years ago and looked at some of the notes and minutes from the Radio Freedom Georgia desk. And there was an interesting discussion where the person who was the uh, radio host was having a debate about whether or not they can use the term colonization or colonized for Georgians in the Soviet period when they were doing their anti-Soviet propaganda. And the discussion came to the conclusion that they shouldn't use the term because no Georgian would have ever thought of themselves as ever being colonized. And it's interesting because when you read the early uh, Georgian Marxists, their, their narrative of Russia is a little bit different than Lenin's because they say it like, well, the Russian empire did play this kind of congealing and progressive role. And you even had Jordania, who was the leader of the Georgian uh, Democratic Republic of Georgia, who was writing this in 1912, you know, 1910, this kind of idea that, um, so from the peripheral position, you actually had this kind of different view of what Russian and the Soviet anti-imperialism um, in the early Bolshevik experiment could mean. And so there's this other dimension that I'm kind of want to just throw into the discussion of like, even as the Bolsheviks are developing this anti-imperial view, the kind of peripheral Bolsheviks, the people who were at the um, the, 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 the 1920 uh, Baku conference, people are kind of throwing in, what does the peripheral view of anti uh, imperialism mean in socialist construction. And so I'm kind of curious because I remember your article, you mentioned this Ossetian writer um, who was bringing kind of this Ossetian view to the um, to the, the, the view of, of Bolshevik anti-colonial writings. Yeah, see, uh, the problem for kind of scholar, scholars like Pokrovsky, radical scholars, was that once they took over the former Russian Empire, right, and once they were able, once the Bolsheviks were able to consolidate their power, they lost something, right, they lost Poland, they lost Finland, but they retained uh, a lot of former, you know, colonies of the Russian Empire. They had to understand what to do with that, right? And it develops on many levels, so kind of it's a huge debate that uh, we don't have time to touch upon. But even, you know, in terms of historical knowledge, right, how, how do you produce historical knowledge? They deal with different situations. And I think the reason why they would not, uh, they would single out Georgia, Armenia, uh, Ukraine to a certain degree uh, as more developed nations is very kind of simple. At that time, they uh, have to struggle with the basic kind of thing to, such as literacy, you know? And if you have literacy, if you have, you know, national intelligentsia, uh, that is at least something because in many other parts of the former Russian empire, you have none of that, right? The Kami people, the Karelians, uh, no literacy, no intelligence, right? How are you going to kind of build socialism without literate people? Uh, and that's why there is that huge project of creating national literacies first, because you can't train, you know, national intelligence if kind of there is no national literacy. That's why, you know, in the first decade, so many new writing systems appear, so many new kind of languages move from the domain of oral languages into the domain of literary languages. So, uh, 
yes, that comes first, and then comes the training of this national kidder, right? The national intelligence. And this is also very interesting because, and this is something that I discuss very explicitly in my article, they're modernists, you know? They are as modernist as it gets. They don't assume, they don't work from the assumption that indigenous knowledge is important. They don't work from the assumption that, you know, indigenous cultural forms are important. For them, indigenous knowledge is something that is, is part of the old class society, right? Indigenous knowledge is something that was produced by local elites, you know, to, and I'm simplifying a little bit, but in general, this is something that emerges within the structures of class oppression. Why would we need, say, the traditional knowledge of kind of the Yakuts or of the Karelians if as somebody who mastered Marxism, we have access to much more advanced forms of knowledge. That's why they do bring people like Kokiev, uh, they do bring people from North Russia, right? Uh, a region that I'm much more familiar with. They bring them to Moscow, they train them as professional historians, and then send them back so that they could write their own history, so that they could contribute to this process of epistemic decolonization. But they understand epistemic decolonization in these purely, you know, Marxist terms. They send them back to write histories of Karela, histories of Ossetia as histories of class struggle and class oppression. Which is the opposite of what's happening always in the US, which they always write totally different histories, completely free from class struggle. Mm -hmm. And it's always like, Howard Zinn, a People's History of the U.S. or something, very marginal books about any kind of class struggle or any kind of, uh, you know, friction. The same thing is happening now everywhere, right? There's absolutely every kind of Georgian histories. It's like, you know, the, the, the serf and the, the Lord were holding hands, apparently, <laughs> throughout, throughout the ages. Um, and so, it's really, it's really quite interesting um, how different it is. But, but to go back into this thing, why is a priori, say, you know, indigenous knowledge good? Like, what, what, what does it bring? Like, maybe give me like an example of how that is actually useful in understanding uh, history, and not just that it feels like it's, you know, because it does feel like it's correct, but why can you give me like more um I don't know, arguments for it so i can feel more comfortable in it again see we are not building socialism now and that is why indigenous knowledge uh for us these days right for me and my colleagues at the university of houston for example is important because that is a way you know to recognize um, other cultures, other historical experiences, right? It's a way to gain access to um, the historical experience that has been marginalized, in a way. And for the very same reason, uh, because, you know, historians from the early Soviet, uh, from early Soviet Russia, from the early Soviet School of Historical Anti-Colonialism, they work from a very different 
um, kind of position from very different presumptions, they do not see any explicit value in that because you know they know that they will rebuild that society. Uh, let me take a concrete example. Right now I'm working on a translation from uh, Grigory Popov, a scholar from Yakutia, who was writing about the colonization of what is now the Sakha Republic, right? What at that time they called Yakutia. And the colonial oppression of the Yakuts. And he uh, he is one of the reasons why I prefer to refer uh, to that school as the you know school of early Soviet historical anti-colonialism other than the Pokrovsky school because Popov's genealogy is in Siberian regionalism, right? So he belongs to uh, that tradition of Siberian regionalists, but he then becomes uh, a member of the Soviet intelligentsia. He is trained in Marxism. He has to use this Marxist analytical framework in order to kind of get published simply in order to get employment in the 1920s and the 1930s. And so he's writing history of the colonial oppression of the Yakut people. And he's describing, you know, all the stages, how uh, the first uh, trappers come, you know, how they rob local communities, how they organize an environmental disaster by over-exploiting the natural resources, by hunting uh, pretty much all the valuable animals in the area. How then the colonial administration comes with the Kazakhs, you know, the colonial militia. How they build structures of taxation that again robs local people of the resources. How then kind of Russian merchants come, Russian merchant capital comes, and how they keep on exploiting uh, Yakutia, uh, and so long and so forth up until the you know early 20th century. And this is a very honest history. This is a very honest history in the sense that he's not romanticizing the Yakuts. He says that there was a lot of resistance, right? But also their upper class was co-opted. The Taoyons were co-opted into the Russian colonial administration, right? They were victims of oppression, but kind of they had their own class structure. They had their own oppression within uh, the kind of the Yakut national body, and kind of they saw the violence of settler colonialism. He describes that uh, a lot. But then again, his solution is not to build, you know, a nation state, not to build kind of Yakutian nationalism. His solution is to recognize all of that as a precondition for it not happening again in the future, right? Now, fast forward into the 19, late 1930s into the 1940s, and these sort of writings under Stalinism, they become dangerous in a way, right? They become useless for the new kind of national project uh, where Russian, Russians come back to occupy this nation, this place as a nation that united all the people into, you know, what used to be the Russian Empire and what is now the Soviet Union. And of course, the Second World War is a very important factor because some of the, some of Pokrovsky's students like Anna Pankratova, for example, if you read her kind of diaries, uh, she refers to that explicitly. She says maybe, you know, the Russian Empire was not a bad thing because, you know, it brought together all those people, yes, through violence, yes, through, you know, colonial oppression, 
but it was by uniting those people into a huge empire that we found, you know, we've accumulated the resources to beat the Nazis. You know, this beating the Nazis becomes the epistemic rationale and the epistemic justification for uh, the colonial expansion of the Russian Empire. And then in the 1940s, they start publishing the same Pankratova, for example, who was, you know, a student of Pokrovsky, who in 1943 co-edited a history of Kazakhstan that still included some of anti-colonial sort of um, uh, frameworks. Late in the 1940s, she publishes a book on the you know, historical role of the Russian people in kind of uh, in the history of the Soviet Union. So they move into back into this sort of uh, latently or sometimes very openly imperialist historical writing because the political project has changed. You mentioned in your paper all these different ways there was a proliferation of these studies, like you mentioned schools and so on. You addressed it, maybe just the a couple more sentences on that, how this was cultivated um, through many institutions and also, in, in, was it also done internationally or just like, you know, Soviet Union based? This is, this is a great question. So, see, I'm at that stage of my project where I'm still uh, studying the discourse and not the institutional kind of organization of the school. But from what I know, I, I can say that uh, it was organized, the training of new, you know, uh, scholars for the historical discipline. It was done both, both in a centralized way and locally. In a centralized way in the sense that in Moscow there were institutions like the uh, Institute of Red Professors or the Communist Academy. And Mikhail Pokrovsky was president of both. That trained these scholars, right, Russian, Ukrainian, Georgian, you name it, in these kind of Marxist framework, analytical framework. And not just in history, right, in many other disciplines, economics, uh, for example, in kind of, uh, political science, uh, all that. And, but also, you know, Locally, some of the most interesting historians who belong to this kind of school of historical anti-colonialism, they emerged locally. And many of them were self-trained. One of my favorite scholars is Nikolai Inchevsky uh, from Rostov and Don, who never, you know, formally studied under Pokrovsky, who I'm not sure if he ever met Pokrovsky, but who adopted the theoretical frameworks, apparently by reading a lot of Pokrovsky's writings, by uh, reading... It was organized also um, through extensive publication program. For example, they had that uh, central uh, historical journal, uh, which was called Historic Marxist, you know, a Marxist historian. They had a bunch of regional journals, uh, that also kind of maintain the same analytical and theoretical framework. And if you immerse yourself in that discourse, right, either by physically traveling to Moscow and studying there, or by, you know, reading Marxist historian journals produced centrally and locally, 
you get enough training you get enough you know, kind of uh, you you educate yourself into this theoretical framework and then you start producing histories so for for instance Yinchevsky produced an excellent history of the Cossacks as a settler colonial group right so he kind of he's working with them again he's working against imperial historiography he's working with this kind of myth that the Cossacks were the free people who fl fled from the Tsarist oppression and he does a very revisionist study of primary sources that look at that uh, process as the formation of you know a settler colonial shock troop and he kind of writes that story in this very radical and new way one of the pieces that you mentioned earlier was this kind of rejection of the Pokrovsky school and some of these other Bolshevik historians in Russia today and by other scholars basically seeing them as, you know, this is something in the past, it's got no utility to us. And what this made me think about was, you know, the nature of not only history, but historiography in kind of post-Soviet memory politics. Because one of the things we like to discuss a lot on this podcast is the nature of the relationship between history and memory politics in the post-Soviet world and Europe and North America, because I think that very often these two things are not discussed in relation to each other. And so obviously when the Soviet Union collapsed and you started uh, having the emergence of a new, uh, new nation states, um, nation states were committed to building not only new nations, but also reconfiguring their own histories. And so in the Georgian case, at least, and in Russia as well, to a different degree in other countries, in the post-Soviet world, obviously in Eastern Europe as well, you had this like wholesale rejection of not only the Soviet and communist past, but even the knowledge production by many people within that past. Uh, for example, in um, Georgia today, of course, there's like more or less a wholesale academic rejection of the Soviet era knowledge production, um, meaning that it's kind of um, uh, considered uh, bad or, you know, controversial to be interrogating um, knowledge production in the Soviet period. And of course, there's a very famous uh, story uh, with someone with whom we interviewed and a friend of the podcast, uh, Ron Suni, well, who told us about how when he wrote his book, uh, Re uh, The Making of the Georgian Nation in 1988, it was like a huge controversy and is still a controversy to this day. Um, and even when uh, this bookstore uh, would want to sell his book in 2018. Um, and the reason is, is not because it's, you know, anti-Georgian, it's because it's a Marxist attempt, the story of the material construction of Georgian nationhood. And so um, there's all, and then so the, the outgrowth of this kind of whole scale rejection of the Marxist approach to history ends up being like, you can't even tell the Marxist history, you can't tell materialist histories because they're associated with the Soviet past that, uh, you know, contemporary post-Soviet nationalists want to reject. Um, and it's very interesting revisiting these early Bolsheviks who were political militants and historians who saw that history itself, you know, had to be political and had to intervene 
um, and that these material tellings of the past were so that certain things were not repeated in the future. Do you have any thoughts on this nature of the kind of post-Soviet memory politics and Soviet historiography? Oh, I have so many thoughts on that. I don't even know where to start. Well, one thing is that when, you know, many of my Russian colleagues say that we should remove politics from from history, right, from knowledge production, I, I stopped arguing with them, but I always think that, you know, it's one of the most political statements that you can make, you know, uh, because the way kind of, if I were to frame it in broad terms, what happened uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union is that the right very successfully squeezed out of academia the left, you know, and not necessarily even the right. So many of my colleagues who can't stand, Russian colleagues who can't stand anything Marxist, they're not the right, they are, you know, centrists, they're liberals in the original notion of this term, but they are very inherently hostile to Marxism because they associate it with, you know, the Soviet era and they don't see any value in, uh, in this Soviet historical experience. And that is why they very, you know, meticulously uh, by using this slogan of let's, you know, remove politics from academia, they get rid of the left in academia. And when you get rid of the left, who is left? Of course, the right. <laughs> That's why uh, Russian academia, you know, uh, in this sense uh, is very hostile, not just, you know, not just Georgian, not just post-Soviet. I can't really speak about other post-Soviet nations other than Russia, but in Russia, you know, it's a handful of professional historians whom you can call Marxists these days which I find very sad because then exactly what happens is that kind of Soviet era knowledge production is rejected. And here's a very good example. One of the kind of, uh, one of my examples is Terry Martin's book, The Affirmative Action Empire. Terry Martin tells us the thing that Soviet historians has been telling, you know, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s for ages, right? that the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 1930s used affirmative act, was not the prison of nations, but was an affirmative action state. So this is basically the main message of Soviet historiography on the national question uh, in the you know, Cold War era. But it took an American historian uh, to write a book about that in order for you know people to finally say oh yes it was not the kind of uh, just the prison of nations they did something positive there right so when this statement came from soviet historical scholarship of the 1970s nobody took it seriously when it came from somebody from you know with an american uh, academic background and affiliation then it became part of of the common truth so in this sense, kind of my project, I know that it goes against the green, but I also kind of think uh, there is added value in that, right? I 
find it very interesting to tell my Russian colleagues that, you know, my one of my current projects is on Pokrovsky and the Pokrovsky school and then look at their reaction. <laughs> um, it can be very, you know, uh, shocking for them to understand that kind of a school that had been so thoroughly discredited and that, you know, people no longer even read uh, because, you know, it's that bad, it's that politicized, it's that ideological that somebody in America can not only find value in it, but kind of can also bring it into conversation with scholars from other disciplines or from other fields and make this a productive conversation. I just want to say, I think that's like a really great point because I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. I like knew it, but the fact that in the post-Soviet erasure of Soviet era knowledge production means that their own histories then get exported to, to Western scholars who are the only ones that have the ability to even do that historical research. No, it's, it's a little you need an American to tell you that this was good. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's, it, it makes me so angry. But unless you have, you know, a German or American or whoever they respect already, like, you know, de facto, um, they don't believe they have anything to offer. And then somebody was like, oh, that's actually interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. Completely. Like all of Soviet scholarship is dismissed, disrespected, um, absolutely looked, looked at. It's like nothing to offer at all. In every, not only just in history, but almost every subject, you know, even the skill sets that people acquired during the Soviet Union is in question, you know, from nurses, doctors, to history, to everything. Yeah, I mean, uh, look at the decolonization debate that started in the field of Russian, Eastern European and Eurasian studies after, you know, uh, the uh, full-scale war broke out between Russia and Ukraine, right, after the Russian attack on Ukraine in 2022, that decolonization debate has up until now been very hermetic in the sense that, uh, you see, if, if you want to have your field decolonized, from my perspective, it's very logical that you look around, you look at the fields, you know, that had been uh, decolonized before you, and you bring into your conversation people from those fields, you know, you want to decolonize Russian history, I'm open to that, right? I want to bring an Indian scholar into a conversation and, you know, a Native American scholar, somebody doing, you know, somebody from Canada who does Canadian history because, you know, again, I'm from North Russia, I see a lot of uh, overlaps between the colonization process in North Russia and what was happening in Canada. I want to talk with, you know, Canadian scholars about how decolonize my field. How does this debate go actually? Kind of, it, they are not involved. These scholars are not involved. Why aren't they involved? And I think the answer is quite possible. It's, it's quite obvious. The answer is that if you start bringing into the conversation about the decolonization of the field, scholars of India, scholars of Brazil, scholars of Mexico, and so forth, you will understand that Russia is not unique, that the colonial violence that, you know, Russia unleashed on the people uh, whom it colonized, it's akin to what, you know, the Brits did in Canada, 
or in India, right, to what uh, the settler colonial project does in Palestine or in Brazil, right? And once you start bringing these other disciplinary perspectives into the conversation, you might come to, you know, unfavorable conclusions for kind of for the field. You might end up with questioning some of the presumptions, you know, uh, about nation state, about nationalism, about, you know, solutions. And that's why I think uh, the field kind of in a very subconscious manner does not want to open up to a conversation with other fields, you know, because we don't want to criticize Ukraine these days because obviously Ukraine is a victim of aggression. But if we bring into conversation, you know, scholars of Mexico, then it becomes more complex, right? And we can no longer look at Russia as that sole source of evil in the current situation. It really has been decolonization of Russians or Russia in these like academia or whatever has been really about replacing a Russian nationalist or Russian liberal with a Ukrainian liberal nationalist. So it's like, it's just like the same politics, just like swapping out. It's just been a way to, you know, get all the, the smaller countries that haven't been able to sort of get those lucrative jobs, like just, but with the same politics, you know, just from a different angle, just swap them out. Because nothing, it actually has not decolonized. Um, it has just replaced, you know, one set of nationalists with another set of nationalists. Of course, you could say, argue that at this point, the Russian nationalists are sort of worse in the sense of how much damage they've caused. But at the end of the day, that's that's what you're doing, you know, and especially in a place where the post-socialist world, where it's constant ethnic, uh, ethno and ethnic and, and border boundary and border fights and very, I would say, fascistic tendencies all around, you know, um, that's not really actually decolonizing. It's just now saying this one person to oppress is okay, then another person to oppress, and just sort of changing out these seats of who you support. One of the things that happened in the Soviet Union, as you already outlined and we've discussed, is that, you know, nations were built and then during the Cold War, of course, you had people, a lot of times emigres, sometimes people underground in certain places who were trying to contest Soviet nationhood with a counter nationhood, a different political agenda for a nationhood, you know? Um, and to me, uh, what this, of course, created was that in the post-Soviet era, um, there was a kind of rehabilitation of the anti-Soviet national ideas that predicated upon this idea of, you know, the Soviet Union, the colonial power, the Soviet Union was an imperialist, and so therefore any attempts at the kind of, that you're researching, the, you know, early Soviet anti-imperial imaginations and their institutionalization were completely erased in order to sort of, you know, in my view, my personal opinion would be that in order to rehabilitate um, a very particular uh, worldview um, of the Soviet Union, the imperialist, and not the West. Of course, we know it's not a secret that that was, um, you know, a, a, a Western strategy um, in order to fight the Cold War, you know, in order to kind of curry favor in the Third World. We know at the UN, for example, um, there was a lot of agitation in order to kind of get 
third world countries on the sides of the West to frame the Soviet Union as the real imperialist and to say that these kind of anti-colonial struggles aligned with China or aligned with uh, the Soviet Union were not really anti-colonial at all, but tied to a, a, you know, a, 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 the real colonial force. And it seems to me, and I know that this is quite a, a you know, can be a, um, a, a fighting statement, but to me, it seems like a lot of the decolonial discourse that's happening now is merely an extension of that kind of narrative of the anti-Soviet, anti-imperialism uh, um, of, the, of the kind of Cold War nationalists um, and not in order to sort of justify um, a particular view of the past. You know what I mean? And in order to give a legibility to a certain political framework. No, that is true. That said, if, you know, an imperialist tells you that kind of the other nation, right, that the other guy is imperialist, it doesn't make it kind of untrue. It doesn't mean, to put it this way, if Stalin says, and I dislike Stalin, you know, a lot, um, but if Stalin says something reasonable, I will not say that it's unreasonable only because Stalin said it, or Hitler, you know, or Trump, whatever. Uh, yes, you know, uh, imperial, the struggle between empires, if we think about the Cold War in this way, uh, it was a struggle against empires, and in the struggle between empires, a lot of truth is said on both sides, right? So uh, it's also worth noting that uh, not just in post-Soviet nations, and I mean the other uh, 14 nation states that emerged after, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but in Russia itself, these radical anti-colonial you know, perspectives on history kind of are erased. The uh, Russian Academy of Sciences is currently preparing a, twin, a new academic history of Russia in 20 volumes. And I made a couple of inquiries uh, to ask what the volumes on the early modern sort of uh, expansion of the Russian state would look like. And my contact in, uh, in the editorial team told me that Kind of, it's going to be very conservative in the sense that it's going to be uh, no settler colonialism, no violence, you know, a peaceful process of Russia's expansion, bringing peace and civilization to uh, to the people of, you know, of Bashkorstan, Tatarstan, Siberia, and so on and so forth. And the reason why it is done, I think it's very, it's very obvious because as long as you stay within, you know, again, this sort of capitalist framework, as long as you don't challenge our current political, social, economic formation, you can't envision anti-colonialism in terms other than nationalism, right? And that is why Russian historians don't want to write anti-colonial histories anymore because they cannot comprehend them other than nationalist histories, right? And if you work in the Institute of Russian History, you don't want to be, you know, pro-Tatar nationalist or pro-Chechen nationalist. First, because it's dangerous professionally, right? Uh, or even politically, right? you can probably get arrested these days. But also because I think they sincerely don't want separatism in the Russian Federation, 
they sincerely, you know, don't want to undermine the Russian Federation. And that's why they don't want to write radical histories, because that's what radical histories do. They undermine the kind of uh, the oppressive regimes. But if you if you are building socialism, you know, if it's that your basic political assumption that we're here to build socialism, then kind of it's not a problem for you. Yes, you know, the Russian Empire was a hegemon. Yes, it unleashed violence on the people, you know, who became part of the Russian Empire. Obviously, the Russian Federation today has a very um, cherry picking view of the Soviet past, as you know very well. They want to romanticize some things, they want to demonize other things. And of course, one of the things that was very interesting to see was that before the full scale, you know, before the, the war broke out, the full scale invasion, uh, however you want to define it, um, the Putin gave this speech in which he like spent dedicated part of the speech to to criticize Leninist nationality policy as being anti-Russian. Uh, and he wanted to you know, criticize these basically these early scholars, uh, the kinds of people that you're you know researching, the kinds of like anti-colonial imagination of early Bolshevik uh, revolutionary imagination and then policy that was implemented. Um, and what was inter what's always been, was interesting me to me about this is not only the way that the Russian state uses it, but that the way that the Russian state's instrumentalization of kind of a an anti-Sovietism to say that this was something against our nation is actually very similar to the types of uh, memory regimes of other post-Soviet countries. You know, like in some sense, like the Russian Federation is not exceptional in that regard, that a lot of these countries, uh, when they sort of have this negative view of the Soviet, they also make claims that this was anti our national interest. And Putin says something very similar. And so seeing and actually that was a kind of moment where I was like, wow, there are these like kind of continuities where in Georgia, for example, some of the liberal anti-Soviet national historical narratives are very similar to the ones that. Putin uses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you read Lenin, you kind of immediately have this understanding of how anti-nationalist Lenin is, you know, how anti-establishment, uh, kind of liberal establishment Lenin's writings are. Automatically, uh, it's kind of up, up to this day, Lenin's writings are subversive. And it is only by the virtue of him being published so actively, you know, in the Soviet era that it's impossible to suppress them. But then kind of nobody is reading them because, you know, Lenin as a historical figure is discredited in the Russian popular imagination. But Lenin is subversive. That's why, you know, Putin is so anti-Leninist. But Lenin is subver subversive for national, you know, kind of um, elites elsewhere as well. And that's why he is not picked by any of post-Soviet nations as kind of, even though Lenin advocated for Ukrainians, Lenin advocated for kind of for all the, for all the oppressed people. Uh, it's very, it's actually very, very interesting. No matter what he did, like even like the Georgian affair around the fact that he's actually trying to stop the annexation of Georgia, completely reinterpret it. Still, like no one actually gives him any credit for that. Like 
still based on some kind of Russian chauvinism. Like people, if probably if you ask anyone, I would say nine, not nine, 10 out of 10 people will tell you it was like Lenin's idea, the whole thing, um, why we were so-called like annexed into the Soviet Union. It's, it's quite incredible the level of um, revisionism that Lenin has faced with <laughs> in this modern period. Because the project was abducted, right? Because the project was first abducted by Stalin and turned into something that, you know, uh, no proper Marxist w would have imagined. And then it collapsed and kind of, I think this experience of, of the collapse of this first ever attempt at um, materialized socialism, that very naturally, you know, paints uh, kind of, that projects the failure onto the origins of the project, right? So you talk to somebody and they say that kind of whatever Lenin did was wrong because, well, look where the Soviet Union en ended. So this is a kind of retroactive projection of failure on the origins, on these very radical origins of the project. Kind of, they're very understandable. It doesn't make them right, but it makes them very, you know, persuasive, very rhetorically effective. And that's why it's, you know, very difficult to argue in favor of Lenin these days because, well, look how it all ended, you know, with Stalin and with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. And then even, even to add to that, Gorbachev's um, remobilization of Lenin in the end of the USSR um, was, you know, precipitated its collapse too. So of course you have this other, this other kind of like view of Lenin, which is that, you know, his remobilization by Gorbachev was like played a played a role in the collapse. I mean, this is of course a, a topic we could discuss and debate. Um, we had uh, Vladislav Zubak on our podcast, and we interviewed him about his book Collapse, and we had a long discussion about about this. But you know, it's in some way you see this kind of view of Lenin, the view of like creating a democracy democratization in Russia in the Soviet Union uh, through Leninism uh, kind of like remobilization of the historical memory of Leninism and then the devolution of federal institutions facilitating the the the, the, the collapse of course it's not the only factor but in it's been interesting sometimes talking to kind of um you know people who lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union and some of the disdain they have for Gorbachev and some of this view of like Gorbachevian liberalism and the re-mobilization uh, of Lenin as playing a role in the end of the USSR too, which is kind of an interesting uh, feature of this kind of historical memory of Lenin in the post-Soviet space. Absolutely. So these are really questions that Brian and I and, and also our friends, our comrades so we've been thinking so much about because decolonization and colonialism is the buzzword no one seems to know what does this even mean but maybe like if there is no project for socialism because that's what it is now and if it's just reproducing different capitalist nation states and ethno nation states and so on what is the purpose of decolonizing or de decolonization discourse for socialists? Well, um, I will be Foucauldian here. You know, Foucault called himself, had this very nice phrase, he called himself a pessimistic hyperactivist. 
in the sense that uh, I think I, I don't know if he believed in socialism or not, but for him, his own work as a historian was to reduce the amount of violence in this inherently violent society. So even if, say, we arrive at the conclusion, and I don't want to arrive at this conclusion, but even if we do, that we are at the end of history, right, that the kind of, at least for us, right, at least within the foreseeable future, we don't see any kind of uh, socialism on the horizon, our job in the decolonization debate is still to reduce the amount of violence around, right? By showing its historical kind of conditions, by showing how it works, by showing how it uh, reveals itself in some concrete material foundations, right? Such as the kind of... Uh, takeover of land, right? Uh, the denial of basic rights, such as the right for water, things like that. But also how it reveals itself epistemically in, in historical writing. And in this sense, even if we fail, you know, to, and we probably will fail to uh, change this society radically, but if we, you know, contribute to this process of lessening violence around us, I think that's already kind of something that I'm ready to live with. Basically, to me, I really love history and I love rigorously reading it and studying it and writing it. But to me, of course, history is always and cannot be divorced from like an ethical political framework and a commitment to a politics. So how do you respond to those who believe that history can be divorced from politics? One way of doing that is to say that this is a political statement, you know, in itself and by itself. Uh, and that by, you know, removing yourself from uh, that, I'll put it differently. Uh, because it's been a while since I had this debate, but one way of doing that is to explain that when you, you know, describe your positionality, when you bring it forward, when you explain from what positions you're writing, it doesn't make your writing less rigorous. It doesn't make it less academic. It actually makes it stronger because you explicate, you sort of uh, bring forward your kind of stance, you make sure that you do not kind of disguise your position with, you know, some kind of false objectivism. You still remain committed to academic standards, you know, you kind of make your argument on the basis of evidence, kind of, because that's what scholarship does. Um, but by sort of explicating your political positions by explicating who you are and where you are and from kind of what uh, material and political foundations you base, kind of, you produce your statements, you make your scholarship stronger, you make it more honest, you know, and by disguising all of that, it doesn't mean that you kind of stop making good scholarship, no, I mean, ob objective scholarship is, is good. Uh, or can be good, can be bad too. I would not deny kind of value in objectivist scholarship, 
but uh, I find it more honest when you know you explicate your position.